Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Poisoner's Cabinet. I'm Sinead. And I'm Nick. And this is your weekly podcast exploring the lives of the great poisoners and poisoning cases from across the centuries and creating curious cocktails inspired by the tales that we tell. And it's episode eight. Eight. How very exciting. Very exciting. Almost ten. Very lucky number in uh, some cultures. Yes. And I have nothing more to add on that. <laughs> that's that's good to know. In this not in this particular culture. Oh no, 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 no. Eight. Oh, it's a mighty number. It's the number of times we're drunk in a day. Uh... <laughs> I think it'd be more than that. <laughs> How are you, Nick? I'm well, fine. <laughs> All things being equal, um, which they are very much not at the moment because it's very bizarre. We are into week three now in the UK of lockdown. Is it week three? It is. It is the third week. We're coming to the end of the third week. It's a bit mad. Yeah, it seems like an eternity. It seems like many, many years have passed. <laughs> no idea what's going on anymore. Crazy times out there. So really hope you are all being safe. And let's say have a massive, massive shout out this week to all of the key workers out there, all the NHS staff, all of the carers, all the people in supermarkets and shops that are having to provide essential services out there on the front line, literally on the front line. This is this is as close as most of us will get to a war hopefully and you guys are absolute heroes thank you and we love you love you and if you're listening have an extra cocktail certainly uh, on us say we prescribe it <laughs> so are you ready to drink cocktails and talk about poison uh, yes or would you rather drink poison and talk about cocktails not today i feel Okay, fine. We'll go with the first one. Go with the first one. One day I'll change my mind. And then you'll be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll change it for you. So, episode eight, Nick's story this week. As ever, we have a secret ingredient that is inspired by the tale that we tell and that forms the basis of the cocktail we enjoy during our podcast. And this week's secret ingredient is, Nick? It's coffee. Coffee? Coffee. coffee. Well, I had tea as my last one, so it seemed appropriate. And then what, what's going to be next? Horlicks? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a multi-drink, a multi-sleepy yes. drink that we'll go to sleep with and get under our covers. Coffee, great. Okay, we need coffee because we're all just in a state of sluggish sleep. Coffee, this will really help. Let's all get caffeined up <laughs> and run around our houses drinking. I That's like this. So with coffee, what are we going with? Uh, we are going with a classic, an absolute classic, the espresso martini. Yay! Which is a marvellous, marvellous drink. Now, I know you're less excited about this, but only because we drink hundreds of them as it is. So it's not new for you. I'm terribly excited. I'm excited. But I know it's one you like, so. 
any excuse to have an espresso martini. And there are so many variants. And I have my little twists on them. You have your little twists on them. Yep. You know what? Espresso martini, even though we spent all of last week ragging on the martini debacle that is out there. <laughs> um, we, we can't seem to escape it. It's martinis nope. all the way with us. We promise uh, from now on there will be no more martinis for at least three episodes. Well, that's a bold promise for you to make on my behalf. Thanks for that. <laughs> I think you're up to it, Nick. Challenge accepted and slightly terrified. But yes, an espresso martini. Mm, mm, it is a delicious, mm. delicious cocktail. Um, and everyone must have had one by now. If you haven't, go and make one. As we're in isolation, we've got to go individually to our little cocktail kitchens that we totally have. Uh, shake up a storm and we will be back shortly. See you in a bit. And we're back Hello. with our espresso martinis. Espresso martini. So Nick, talk us through the quantities and what you have mixed up for us today. Well, a lovely espresso martini. Lovely, um, lovely. Which is the perfect mix, really, of caffeine and vodka. It is the original energy drink. <laughs> it is It is a much more civilised energy drink. Who needs vodka, Red Bull and all that nonsense? You want one of these, that's what you want. So way back in the day, the kids were just sitting on streets, like swigging from espresso martinis and playing stickball. Well, no, I mean, this was invented in the early 2000s. Really? Yeah, so yes, it's, it's a relatively modern invention. And yet it feels so classic. It does, it is. And I think it, it, is, a, it is a classic to come, because I think it will be around mm. for years and years and years to come so it is definitely a classic now and and whoever's invented it out there if you're listening well done well done <laughs> why didn't anyone think of this before the ratios and quantities everyone will tell you something different what i go with is one and a half parts of vodka one and a half parts of hot espresso it has to be hot freshly made hot espresso um half part of a coffee liqueur like a kalua or something like that and then depending on your tastes sugar syrup if you're using something like Kahlua, which is naturally quite sweet anyway, personally I would probably not bother with the sugar. Coffee liqueur I've got is quite bitter, so I do go for about a quarter of a shot of sugar syrup. Shaken up for a good long time over lots of ice um, and poured into a cold martini glass. And you get a beautiful cocktail with a black black body with a sort of foamy head on top, like a classy Guinness. <laughs> or, or an espresso. <laughs> or an espresso, but it is... A beautiful, beautiful, thing. beautiful, beautiful thing. thing, and so we shall have a so, taste. Mm. Mm. It's delicious. Oh, now that is an elegant beverage. I, I forgive this one being called a martini, but not having any martini. It's in the it. only martini we will allow. The only one. That is what allowed. have you used in this one? What I've done is because in the back of my cupboard I had a bottle of sea salted vodka. What? Or sea salt vodka that I bought on the Isle of Wight um, about two years ago. Was it when you went there um, to stand at the end of a pier in a long dress and a, and a shawl and stare at the ocean and go, oh. Don't have to go to the Isle of Wight for that. <laughs> <laughs> I live near the sea here. I can do that anytime I like. <laughs> That's how I see you, Nick. That's how I see you in my head. As many people do on a Saturday evening. Anyway, so the sea salted vodka. So I've used that. And then also, rather than a sugar syrup, I had a caramel um, <gasps> syrup. In there, so it's a, like a salty caramel coffee. That is amazing. And it's quite delicious. That's, I mean, it's brilliant. But that's just a marvelous happenstance of what I had in the cupboard. It just goes to show with espresso martini, you know, the basics are the coffee, the vodka, and a coffee liqueur of some kind. And then you can mix it up. You can twi- twi- play with the flavors. So you say that I know some places who rather than vodka use tequila. Oh no. 
um, as the base spirit. Well, a, a really good tequila, I will be a huge advocate for a really good tequila. Do not, none of the, the shop bought with the tequila hat bottles, d- stay away from that, guys. <laughs> the little Mexican oh, God, sort of hat. No. You will die. You will die when you've drunk it. <laughs> Classy it's stuff. horrible. A really good tequila, you know, they are delicious. You can sip them on their own and people usually think, what? It's just shots. No, no, it, it's they are things of beauty. So a really good tequila, I'd be intrigued to try it. I, I, I don't see it working, but, you know, I'm willing to be changed. So Nick did give me the quantities for the espresso martini explained it to me several times uh, and i've made it several times i went downstairs forgot all of them <laughs> completely got them all wrong however i've still managed to make something sensational i used the bison grass vodka okay nice that yeah. we used a couple of episodes ago in the beetlejuice we did in the beetlejuice um so bison grass vodka it is a sipping vodka it's almost got a kind of a chocolatey taste to it it is delicious on slightly its own. meaty slightly bison <laughs> yes it is with the taste of the past gone <laughs> yes it's got that meaty t- no it hasn't it's but it is a little bit chocolatey and sweet i really really recommend that vodka it's delicious but went with the bison grass i have kalua which is quite sweet um put in more kalua than i was supposed to because i got confused between the quantities of coffee and kalua <laughs> and uh, that all got mixed up so <laughs> coffee espresso and i added some sea salt just normal sea salt uh, that i had and I added my chilli sugar syrup. Nice. It is quite sweet as a result, but salty, a little bit spicy, chocolatey goodness. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going in for another sip. <laughs> sorry. Oh, so good. So good. And I'm fully awake as well. <laughs> You're never so ready yet. for this story. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So we have our espresso martinis in hand. What tale are you going to tell for us this week, Nick? Take us on a journey. Well, it's another one of my tales that started off with... This was going to be a compilation tale. This was going to be two linked stories together. Two for the price of one is a madman. Two for the price of one. Um, and then I got carried away researching this one. And now it might be one one story that stretched over two episodes because I just found <laughs> so much stuff. <laughs> All the research and stuff I had done on this, there wasn't a huge amount of depth to it. But then I came across one particular account, which was quite um, fulsome. Um, and they had referenced a book. A book, you say? A book. A book someone had written purely about this this case um so a lot of what i'm going to say is taken from that book with a few random web pages and stuff it's called the inheritor's powder a cautionary tale of poison betrayal and greed by sandra hempel sensational um that's a good title anyway so uh are we all sitting comfortably we are starting in november 1838 um in the village of plumstead 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 um which at the time was a lovely little picturesque village in kent Uh... Again, not a million miles away from where Sinead and I are now. But only 50 years later, I mean, it was consumed by a ever-expanding London um, and became part of the borough of Greenwich. I thought you were going to say... Not by a big sea monster. I was thinking, what, a dragon? <laughs> ever-expanding <laughs> yes, dragon, dragon that was just lazily eating villages. Yes, those famous Kentish dragons. They are know. famous. Pesky, pesky. Uh, but in 1833, it was still mainly farmland. And one of the most prosperous farms was owned by a 79-year-old George Boodle. Or Boodle. B-O-D-L-E. Boodle? Boodle, I'd say. Boodle would be two O's. Bottle? But bottle? Boodle? Bode- Bodell. Bodell. Anyway, Bidell. him. B-Dog. <laughs> By George B-Dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was known for his rap farm. God damn those hip-hop vegetables! <laughs> um, anyway, on the morning of 2nd of November, George comes downstairs for his breakfast, um, and the maid prepares some coffee for him coffee Co- yeah coffee. exactly coffee. Oh, coffee coffee we have the link there it is <laughs> so that requires a sip of the espresso martini mm-hmm. 
Um, yes, anyway, so the maid makes coffee for That's him, nice. for George and his wife, Anne. Um, his wife, Anne, quite poorly in her, say, mid-70s, and unfortunately is bedridden from a long-term illness. So she's upstairs. George was a, a frugal man. I mean, he's incredibly, incredibly wealthy man. He owned a massive farm, lots of land, cottages and workshops and things that he rented out. So a big landowner, but very frugal. Which is probably why he became yeah, so see, wealthy. The richest ones well, exactly. Are. It's probably why he became so wealthy in the first place. Very tight with his money. Coffee grounds that was used to make his his coffee that morning were then reused. Oh, Anne's daughter Elizabeth from a previous marriage, who was there to help her convalesce while she was ill. So Elizabeth and two of the maids um, got to have some diluted coffee from the second round of boiling. Oh, oh no! Oh, he gets the first batch, and then they get. He and his wife get the first batch. Then the the daughter and the two servants get the second boiling oh. of the the coffee grounds, and then those are then left outside in the wash house for the charwoman who comes along every morning to collect those coffee grounds to take to her own daughter and grandchildren, so they can have a nice cup of hot brown. I mean, isn't it just sludge by this stage? It's just dust. Yeah, no, there's no coffee flavour. It's just hot dust. <laughs> just just hot um, dust. Here we are, children. So good of the man at the farm to give us that <laughs> when he's not making his hip hop records, when he's not busting a rhyme. He's off with his lovely coffee grinds. That, that he is. So, I mean, Judith, charwoman, a woman named Judith Lear, um, arrives at the farmhouse that morning to pick up her thrice-used coffee grounds to take back to her little hovel, I suppose. Um, <laughs> what are you looking at me like that for? I just love the way that you said charwoman. <laughs> she lives in a hovel. Hovel, bitch. Well, she's not a wealthy lady. She's a widow. She's got a. She's got at least two daughters, seven grandchildren. This is. <laughs> um, so it's not going to be a... An opulent lifestyle. She lives in the fanciest address, <laughs> but no furniture. But what, what coffee she serves. She gets to the farm to pick up her, her coffee grounds and is met by a terrible sight. <gasps> the two maids, um, Sophia and Betsy, are pale, ill, stomach cramps, vomiting, oh. burning in the throat. Ooh. Um, and this was that morning, so not half an hour since they had drunk the coffee, were outside feeling incredibly unwell. Oh dear. Judith sympathises, very upset that they're not feeling well, but she's got stuff to do. She takes it to coffee grounds. <laughs> no one has connected the two things at the moment. So Judith... I'm she's just sorry. stepping over them in the yard, no. just going, oh, it seems like a real, it's fine. Let me just take these supplies from your it's house. Pretty pretty much, yeah. So terribly sorry you're ill, but I've got stuff to do. So off I go. She's off getting the coffee and the silverware, probably. Yeah. Okay, so she's got the coffee. She's got the coffee. Inside, bedridden Anne... Oh, she's in a bad way. She's upstairs in bed. Again, stomach cramps, horrendous vomiting. Elizabeth, her daughter, who is there to look after, equally reeling so unwell, so poorly, um, that she actually decided, no, she's got to go home back to her own place. She only she only lives in a cottage in the same village, so it's not that far. She doesn't even get that far before she collapses on the way and is carried back to the farmhouse by two of the farmhands to find her on the ground. Uh, George himself is there at the kitchen table, Hasn't been out to inspect the work on the farm or anything like that. He's there clutching his stomach. Mm. Absolute, absolute agony and nausea, vomiting. The pox has clearly fallen upon the farm or a a terrible bout of cholera. Well, they don't think it's cholera. They think it's, there's a thing that goes round at the time called the English disease. (laughs) Right. Well, it's called because like the Asian disease that was there. That's nasty. That's going to kill you. Okay. 
but the English disease, it's a bit more civilised. <laughs> it's going to give you a bit of jip, but it's like a 24-hour bug. And they're living on a farm. They live, there's marshland around and things like that. They think, oh, they've just eaten something bad. Yeah, it's not like you're living in the time of great refrigeration. There's obviously all sorts of diseases within the marsh and water is being brought in and animals, obviously farmyard animals, passing a lot of stuff. You know, exactly. People get sick on a farm. People die People at the get farm. Sick. People die at the farm. People get better just as quickly as they get sick. Indeed. And that's what they assumed it was. It was a 24-hour thing. It would pass. It was unpleasant. The next day, everyone would be bright as rain and back to normal. Anyway, at the end of that day, George's son, John, um, who also worked on the farm, he was nicknamed Middle John. Um, firmly knows his place in that family. Firmly knows his place. He's Middle John. Came to the farmhouse to collect his day's wages um, and discovered his father still seriously, seriously unwell. Vomiting, complaining of stomach pains, blurred vision. Um, and as I say, George had avoided calling the doctor all day. Primarily, doctors were expensive. Oh. You had to pay for your doctor. If they came out, yeah, they charged. Of course. And as we said, stomach bugs and things, they weren't uncommon. But Middle John knew something. This this wasn't a stomach bug that they had seen before. This was something a bit more serious. Mm. Um, so he insisted that the doctor be called. One of the farmhands runs into the village, gets the doctor, Dr. Butler. Dr. Butler. Dr. Butler. Did he change his profession at some point? Potentially. Or is he a butler in disguise trying to work his way up in society? <laughs> Perhaps he's a doctor, but he's always wanted to be a butler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what he's aiming for. He wears white gloves all the time. Hello, sir. There we are. I've drawn you a bath. <laughs> So Dr. Butler arrives at the farmhouse and he, as soon as he's examined the family, he thinks poison. <gasps> he thinks something has been introduced. This is not a bug. There are lots of people who work on this farm in the land who are probably sharing the same water supply and water pump and things, but it's all contained within the uh, farmhouse. And not entitled to a cup of coffee, probably. The farmhands. <laughs> no coffee for them. So the doctor, he, what he prescribes was quite common at the time, apparently, is a drink of egg whites sugar water and castor oil sounds delicious well i think the idea being water would dilute whatever's in your stomach the egg whites and castor oil are going to make you vomit so you're going to bring up whatever is irritating your stomach but george he's having none of that what no you can't be dealing with that no he's gonna have his pint of ale (laughs) that's what he's going with the others in the household they go yes doctor we'll do what you suggest we will have our Oh, sugar water and castor oil and egg whites. George, nap. Nah, I'm having my ale. Beer will sort out everything. <laughs> Beer will sort out the problem. I will drink until I feel better again. Drinking will dull the pain. <laughs> I won't care at the end of the day. He's got ale. My God. <laughs> I mean, that's what he'd always done every night. He'd had his couple of pints of ale. So George wasn't bothered. He's like 79. Just a pint of stout. Pint of stout or a sherry, a sherry of an evening. And a a pickled egg and I'll be fine. And a pickled egg, (laughs) just a few espresso martinis and I'll be fine. (laughs) That'll be us when we're 80. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're not going to get to 80, This is is trying. I thought that. As soon as I said that, I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen. 80? Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) You'll die before me. Dr. Butler returns the next day and finds little improvement in George. I mean, George is drunk, obviously. Well, George is mainly pissed. Um, but the others are <laughs> looking a bit better. The remedy seems to be having the desired effect, and they're, they're starting to feel better. The following day, this whole thing started on the Saturday. We're now on the Monday. Dr. Butler, still rather concerned about George. Dr. Butler goes to consult with a, a colleague of his, um, a Dr. Sutton. Dr. Sutton came to exactly the same conclusion. This was the work of poisoning, and he suspected arsenic. <gasps> um, he thought this was characteristic of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. So I arsenic. think we should have a little alarm going off now. Arsenic, klaxon, klaxon, arsenic, arsenic the classic. <laughs> oh, it's an arsenic case, it's a everybody. Classic. 
Put on your arsenic hats. <laughs> I need a big hat with A on it. I need a big hat with all the letters <laughs> of the poisons. I'll have a dress with A on it. <laughs> no, that's another book. That's the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> okay, so put on your big A hat. Put my big A hat. Dr. Sutton suspects arsenic. arsenic. But they were relieved to see that the, he had stopped vomiting. He stopped vomiting, though he was still complaining of incredible stomach pains. Again, they prescribed this water, castor oil, egg white. Drink it down. Try and throw up whatever's in your system. George, stubborn, stubborn man. Nah, not having it. He's going to get over it. He's starting. He thinks he's starting to feel better. The next day, Dr. Butler visits. Now we're on Tuesday the 5th. The only thing Dr. Butler can do is sign a death certificate. George (gasps) has died. George is dead? George is dead. Died that evening um, with his son, Middle John, sitting by by his bedside. Trying to pull a bottle of ale out of his hand. <laughs> Potentially. Go, stop drinking. Um, or I need some. I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is very stressful. I want to drink with you, Teddy. <laughs> but George Bodel. I'm going to go with Bodel. Bodel. That's how I'm going to say it from now on. Oh, he's dead. He did. But also, why? They think he's been poisoned. They think he's been arsenic poisoning. But was George the only target? Was George the target at all? Was it anyone else in the family? And is George, mm. because he had been so stubborn and not taken this remedy, that he had been he had died and the others had, had all survived? Um, because, of course, arsenic is a cumulative poison. You need to... It builds up in your system. You can have massive quantities and it won't really affect you, but it does need to build and build and build in smaller doses. So that does sound suspicious. If everyone so else is getting better... Everyone else is getting better, George. Not George. Mm. Yeah, so was George the target? If he was, why poison the other four? Was it someone else? Um, and if George was the target, why? Um, what was the motive? Why George? Why well, George? Why an old man? The motive was not hard to guess. I mean, George was an incredibly well-respected man in the village, but he was not a liked man. He was not, not a, a liked, liked man. man. Respected because of his ability. He was a skilled businessman. He was a skilled farmer he knew how to run his land and maintain a business but by doing that he was strict with his tenants and his farm workers and things he was not a pleasant man to be around he was incredibly tight with his money um as has been evidenced Mm. by the endless sharing of the one set of coffee grounds for the entire house for the entire village (laughs) it would seem um (laughs) get his leftovers um yeah you would be pissed off with that as well is that the the only taste of coffee you've ever had is from one farmer handing out out the, the watered down oh, absolutely grinds. i mean yeah. his, he's coming across as a cool cool man his his son john worked on the farm but he was employed as an ordinary laborer this was someone who anticipated to inherit the farm i mean his father 79 in in the 1830s that was ancient he had had a long and fulfilled life exactly. but he wasn't going to be around for much longer so middle john anticipated inheriting but george was not interested in giving him any responsibility teaching him the trade of the of the business so we've got an old stubborn man a rich stubborn man who's hanging on right into the end not relinquishing any power not dulling at all in his old age or softening but still sitting there with his coffee sipping it bitterly on a big pile of money pretty much he was he was worth in today's money over two million pounds um and so he was incredibly wealthy his grandson middle john's son also called john but this time young john see they were incredibly creative (laughs) um so we have middle john and then young john the grandson also used to work on the farm but his grandfather had fired him what now i don't know why 
I couldn't find out why he had been fired, but his grandfather has fired his grandson from mm. the farm. Um, so obviously a very strict man, very... Well, fair enough. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to have nepotism and then hire your family. But the, I mean, the grandson could have been stupid. The grandson could have been five, for all well, we know. This, he was yeah. five and working on the farm and just going, can we fire him? He's shit. <laughs> he can barely pull a plough. So, so, I mean, so Dr. Butler knew this was not an accident. Oh, I like it. He went to the local magistrate um, and the magistrate agreed with Dr. Butler that this was sufficiently worrying um, and concerning to warrant an investigation. Mm. So while that was being undertaken, while that was set in motion, Dr. Butler returned to the farmhouse, but this time in a slightly different capacity. This was a time before detectives. Um, <laughs> the Metropolitan Police wasn't around no. at that time. There were no detective agencies. So it was the magistrate and a local constable who were there to keep order keep the law but in these sorts of cases it was down to the first medical man on the scene to collect evidence absolutely to take notes to ask questions yeah to take evidence that he thought was pertinent to the case and to keep hold of it so he went about which is a huge responsibility it is, absolutely. Isn't it? because if you're there as if you're there as the as the doctor and you're looking after the case and you're looking after a patient and you're trying to clear up but you're also trying to think as a forensic scientist but you're then having to gather evidence and think about things outside of your remit as being a caring doctor absolutely. it's going to be there horrible were just started off voluntary courses that when you were training to be a doctor at this stage at this time you you would learn about some measure of forensics and what to do in a if one of your patients died in a mysterious way what these was the evidence and what did you need to retain or make notes of and that was only just starting to come into the training now butler had been trained long before this but fortunately he was quite a um, a forward-thinking chap and he had actually been on almost like refresher courses had done this of his own volition to learn the new ways of doing things so that's grand which is great from his point of view he's absolutely fantastic if he was just some other sort of local village doctor probably wouldn't have a clue what he was looking for First steps into forensics exactly i mean so dr butler he took samples of george's vomit other members of the family if they had been sick they were better now but if they had been sick perhaps on a carpet or on some clothes lovely or something like that, things well <laughs> things didn't get washed things got washed once every few months or something so if someone had oh, thrown up on a jacket or something like that it would be brushed down but it wouldn't have been like laundered or anything indeed indeed now that's a really nice image actually that we all forget about but yeah you've just got people throwing up and people literally just scrape it off a little bit and go it's fresh as a daisy fresh as a daisy so he 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 had cut samples out of clothing or out of the carpet he's a he's a clever clever man he was able to retrieve the coffee grounds that had been used on that saturday morning from the charwoman because Anne, the wife had been taken so ill she was actually called upon the charwoman Judith was called upon to rush back to the house to to help look after look after the mistress to look after Anne. So the coffee grounds had been left on her table in her little kitchen um, for the past few days, just un- untouched. Luckily, he was able to retrieve these these coffee grounds. And thank from... God she hadn't used them. Well, absolutely. In that house of her children and her nineteen grandchildren <laughs> in the <laughs> hovel that she lived in, according to you. Those were all she had. It's been a hell of a week. <laughs> they were they were unused. I mean, even he took scrapings from the bottom of the kettle that had been used to heat the water to see if oh, perhaps some metal or something in the bottom of the kettle had leached into the water. So he was incredibly forward thinking. Oh my God, I love this man. He's brilliant. I mean, we're jumping from last week where we had some poison sweets just thrown on the street and the police going, we'll give you £20 if anyone knows what's happened here. This is a doctor <laughs> going above and beyond. Completely. Love him. Completely. But the news was out in the village. George was dead. 
the doctor had been seen coming and going, asking questions, leaving with bags of things from the farmhouse. Vomit. Of bags of vomit. Um, <laughs> and the villagers don't like George. They're all just going, ding dong, George is dead. <laughs> so rumours were starting, as they would in a little village. The rumour mill begins to turn. Little village that had four pubs. Excellent little village. Excellent um, little village. <laughs> but the best one, the plume of feathers. Shut up. Good name for a pup. I like it. The plume, the plume of, of feathers. feathers. Oh my God. It's a good name. <sighs> is it still there? Is it still there? Uh, that I don't know. That I don't know. We'll have to Google it. Right. If it's still there, we're going <laughs> we're there. As soon as lockdown ends, we are there. It's probably horrible now. <laughs> it's probably a weather spoons. <laughs> Generic horrible bar. But the plume of feathers. <laughs> okay. What happened at the plume of feathers? A rustling of feathers as the chatter begins. There's gossip flying all over the place. A rumour has been started. Young John, this is George's grandson, he's in his early 20s. Young John had been heard in the pub saying that there was another he wanted to get out of the way. And that was his father. (gasps) Then he left. What? Young John disappeared. Sorry, he he went into the pub? No, I don't think he's probably said it in the pub, but the rumour was in the pub that someone had overheard him say this. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Oh, that's that's great pub gossip. Well, I heard this bloke who said this thing. Who said this thing. They all gathered around the water pump. Yeah, like, oh, I never heard what I heard. Exactly. You never heard what... It's like Chinese He's been down the farm and and he's been by the pigsty and he's been down the river. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Exactly so. That is how people in Kent talk, by the way. (laughs) So all this happened on the Saturday. The poisoning was was on the Saturday with the Saturday morning coffee. Saturday evening... Young John had gone. He disappeared. He wasn't in the village anymore. <gasps> Fled! To, he had gone to London, to Clerkenwell. No, not that den of inequity! Where his sister was married and owned a coffee shop. Coffee again. And he had gone to visit his sister in London for another cup of coffee. But this rumour reached the ear of his father, of Middle John. Middle John. So young John has been in the village. Someone has overheard him saying that he killed the grandfather and he also wants to get his dad out of the way. Yep. The dad is next. Um, Middle John hears this rumour going around the place. His son is trying to kill him. Son has killed his grandfather, Middle John's father, and is he's next on the list. Well, that's not a good day. It's not a good day. He goes straight to the magistrate. Bit harsh, but fair, but fair. And tells what he what he has heard, that his own son has killed his grandfather and was plotting to kill him too. Young John was always a wrong Well, young John, another rumour gets to the magistrate's ear as well. Young John has been buying arsenic. He was seen in a Joseph Evans chemist shop in Woolwich and bought two packets of arsenic things. Did young John go to Woolwich while doing a kind of high-kneed, pyramid-fingered kind of walk while laughing and wearing a top hat? Well, that I don't know. That was not written in any of the reports, unfortunately. I suspect he probably was. Let's just go with that. That is how all Victorian people walk. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But the magistrate by this point has heard enough. He's heard enough. He summons PC James Morris, a very active constable, the papers report, and dispatches <laughs> him to Clerkenwell to take young John Bodle into custody. The next morning, we are now Wednesday the 6th of November, PC Morris arrives at the coffee shop in Clerkenwell, where young John was thought to be staying with his sister. Um, He's there with an arrest warrant in one hand and a pair of handcuffs in the other. Um, But the PC wasn't expecting much resistance. I mean, everyone in the village knew young John was a mild-mannered man, fairly easygoing. When the constable approached John in the coffee shop, he was there as, as expected. He was quite surprised when young John collapses to the floor in a faint. What? Just shocked, horrified <gasps> that he's been accused, didn't know anything about it. <laughs> he uh, completely surprised. Fainted. And he faints. <laughs> in a foppish kind of <clears throat> way. In a foppish kind of kind of way. I mean, young John is taken upstairs to a room to recover and regather his wits. While he's there, PC Morris, little glass of rum. Little glass of rum, always good for the constitution on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> To be fair, if I walked into a coffee shop and it was about 10am and they said, would you like a glass of rum? I'd be like, okay. Are you PC Morris? (laughs) (laughs) It was me the whole time. I'm very active. And bend and flex and shape and (laughs) So he has two. Two glasses of rum. Young John has recovered from his shock at being accused of such a heinous, heinous thing. And is taken by the constable to the Cross Keys coaching inn. The constable who's pissed now on rum as well. well. He's had two glasses of rum, so he's not hes not completely pissed. He still well, knows they what They go to the cross keys, they stop for a kebab on the way. Uh, we go to the cross, they go to the cross keys where they wait for the omnibus, excellent work, <laughs> omnibus. omnibus, to take them back to, <laughs> to, to Plumstead. While there, little glass of ale. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. hurt. Little glass of ale for each of them. The constable and the, and the prisoner. Chased down with a brandy. Always good. <laughs> They're having a proper sesh, aren't they? <laughs> They're having a great time. Great. Brandy, all oh, this mixing a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know. While they're at the cross keys, the constable decides, better search this young man, see what's going on. And he takes some silver, some silver coin, as well as a key from the young man's pocket. Oh, a key. John says the key opens a, a trunk in his bedroom where the constable will find some packets of arsenic. What? Well, he's saying, well, yes, I have bought some arsenic. I bought it to kill the rats. Kill the rats. So that's where I keep the arsenic. It's locked away. 
It's locked away, nice and safe. No one's going to get to it. You want some arsenic? There it is. It's in this trunk in the bedroom. Here's the this, key. This for sounds it. like a really ill thought out drunk confession <laughs> after a few glasses. Like, it's a key. Okay, I'm not going to let you. There, there's arsenic in this trunk, but it's not what you think it's for. <laughs> and I love you. They take the omnibus back to What Plumstead. is an omnibus, Nick? Well, it's a, it's a bus. In the 1830s? It's, it's a horse-drawn bus that lots of people would sit in. Like a carriage, but for lots of people, drawn by horses. Called an omnibus, which is where we get the bus from. And, uh, everyone just picture that in your head now. Just a kind of a bus thing drawn by one poor horse. I think it might have been more than one. I think it might be two, two horses. Nah, one horse. It was one horse. Going, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I don't like buses! <laughs> <laughs> They're on the omnibus, okay. They're, they're on their way back to Plumstead. Constable, please, as Punch, got his got his quarry in tow and has had a few glasses on the way. So he's he's happy. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Plumstead, the inquest starts. Da, da, da. Dun, ba, ba. Dr. Butler is there trying his best to explain what has happened, that he was called out, um, what he found when he got there, um, and the evidence. And he has all the evidence, exactly. hasn't he? He's got everything. He's got test tubes. He's got bags of vomit. Uh, the coroner also then calls a surprise witness, <gasps> a chap called James Marsh. Surprise! Um, now, James Marsh, he is a very interesting chap, um, and he was the one who was going to link all my stories together. James Marsh! Oh, certain people listening to this, any person who is into poisoners is just going to go, Marsh? <laughs> there we go. Okay. I don't know a lot, but I'm, I'm listening. Described as a practical chemist. Um, he was employed at the Greenwich Arsenal. Um, so he was there um, developing new guns and gunpowder and all sorts of clever, incredibly smart things. He was employed there. But he had been sort of seconded to give some evidence and do some testing. In, the, in this case, um, he announced that he had tested the samples of coffee um, that Dr. Butler had collected and could say with absolute certainty that they had contained arsenic. Mm. Uh, at this point, the coroner declared that they needed a medical gentleman. He needed a medical <laughs> gentleman to perform a post-mortem on George Bodle. An excellent term. I want to be a medical gentleman. I require a medical gentleman to examine me. <laughs> It's a brilliant phrase. Who amongst us hasn't required a medical gentleman every now and then? The day of the inquest can, continues. At the end of the day, they ask, well, what do we do with young John? He's been brought back. He's at the inquest. I mean, no evidence has been presented that has implicated him. Lots of circumstantial. But the coroner was a bit hesitant to, to just let him go and say, we'll come back tomorrow. But then didn't want to lock him up either. Can't lock him up. There's no evidence to lock him up with. So his father, Middle John, suggested that perhaps young John should remain in the custody of PC Morris. Um, but the middle John would pay for his upkeep. So fair, I mean, fair enough that young John, young John has, there is no evidence. It's just basically, it's all conjecture. Said, I heard that she said that they said that he said some shit about his grandfather and his father. PC and him have just had a lovely day out in Clerkenwell. Yeah. Lovely trip to London. Had a few, had a few drinks. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite nice. It's in a nice pub. They reminisce. They shared keys. I mean, so that's, it's agreed that young John, We'll stay with the stay with the PC um, until all this is sorted out. So PC Morris takes young John back to his in Woolwich, stopping on the way a glass of gin and peppermint and the mortar in <laughs> peppermint. To have a have gin. a gin, gin and peppermint. Yeah. See, I think our PC Morris, early cocktail lover, he knows, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Was it just gin with just a candy cane in it or something? Or just I gin? don't. I don't. Or just know. some humbugs. <laughs> just humbugs and they were like have you learned nothing this is actually before this happened but never mind <laughs> yeah well exactly <laughs> Bradford sweets poisoning so they have a, they have a nice glass of 
gin and peppermint at the mortar. So they go back to the PC's lodgings. The next morning, PC Morris, Morris um, goes to search young John's cottage. He's got his key, and indeed he finds the trunk, and he finds the packets of arsenic. One full, still sealed, the other open. He also finds a bottle. Um, containing about an inch and a quarter of who knows what, not labelled, just a, a glass bottle with a liquid. Um, Morris takes the ev- that evidence um, and heads out to go and see Evans, the chemist, to see, okay, is this the, the arsenic that you sold um, young John? Any idea what this is in the, the bottle? But on the way, PC Morris bumps into some friends. Shut up. Quick one, quick half in the, oh in, the in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> he spends the rest of the day on a pub crawl of Woolwich. <laughs> Spending seven hours in one pub. <laughs> oh, it, it would be tragic if he's a popular chap. It wasn't worryingly close to our lives and our lives with our friends. <laughs> we have done this many a time where we've just got out. Going, Let's have a wander in town, and we're just going to go and get some like stationery and a couple of essentials. Like a glass of wine. Quick, quick glass, quick glass, just one, because then we're going to go home and have tea and play a board game. Nine hours later, Emma from Real Life Ghost Stories has to take me home and open my door for me. So I'm on board with this PC. So just, oh my so God. So unsurprisingly, PC Morris is a bit unclear about exactly what happened next. He does remember, and this is a quote, that I was obliged to go into the Red Lion to take some shelter from the rain, where I stopped for some time. <laughs> yes yes as it PC. continued to rain um, it was not his fault not his fault not what his fault. else it could he raining. do exactly so he's in there he partakes of the local hospitality has a few pints of ale bends down to tie his shoelaces glass bottle falls out on the floor smashes oh, no no <laughs> he manages to retrieve a little bit of the liquid which he keeps in a, in a tumbler Sh- which he stores. It's on the floor, and he's which he just stores in a tumbler. Scooping it up in whatever shitty tumbler. Scooping it up. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's. I put it in here. I probably won't drink it. Nine gins, please, and no. put raspberry in them this time. Well, I mean, eventually the rain lets up, and PC Morris ventures out of the Red Lion with his tumbler of liquid, whatever it was from the gro- broken glass bottle. Yep. So he heads out of the Red Lion. Makes it as far as the mortar in. Fuck off, no. When a thirst comes upon him. (laughs) A thirst, a terrible, terrible thirst. How far away is the mortar in? Oh, it's probably like down the road. It's probably like four (laughs) or five buildings down the road. A gin and peppermint, go down a treat about now. (laughs) Just, just, uh, just one more couldn't hurt. Oh my God. Yep, so there we are. Is he holding this tumbler? He's still got this tumbler. (laughs) He's still got this tumbler. But then also at this point, I mean, he... He's on. He's on a roll now. Um, he's entertaining the crowd. He's got this evidence. These these packets of evidence. Look, everyone. Look at the evidence I've got. What? It gets passed around the pub. What? Some chap opens it. Oh, it's on my trousers. Dusted off. <laughs> <laughs> eventually. <gasps> eventually. No. <sighs> PC gets to the chemist about eight thirty nine o'clock that evening. Considering he had he had inspected he had searched the room at about eight eight o'clock that morning, <laughs> he eventually gets to the chemist at about eight thirty ish that evening and with a tumbler gone. or whatever liquid was left and like a packet and a bit of <laughs> white powder. Um the rest of it's down someone's trousers. Um <laughs> and, and God knows what that was. That person has poisoned his legs. <laughs> 
poisonous trousers. Deadly trousers. Deadly trousers, everyone. Put them on. Oh, my God. It's like a drinking game in that pub now. Put on the deadly trousers. <laughs> and he's turned up at the chemist with a, bottle, with, a, with a glass of... Okay, it's probably just port. There we are. So, I mean, he manages to speak to the... The chemist who does how? Who reports that, how does he manage to speak? I mean, <laughs> he, he the chemist reports that yes, he's clearly pissed, and but makes it clear what he wants and is able to communicate, and they are able to have an exchange. The PC gets what he the information he needs. Yes, these are the packets that I would have that I sell arsenic in. These were the ones I would have sold him. No, not got a clue what liquid that is in the tumbler. What are you talking about? <laughs> now, no. But and um, and there we go. I think it's cinnamon aftershock. There we are. Thank you. <laughs> PC Morris stumbles on home. Whatever's left of the evidence, he's collected. It's a, it's brilliant. I love PC Morris. I love PC Morris. <laughs> PC Morris is all of us. PC Morris is all of us, and he will be all of us when lockdown is over. <laughs> I mean, the inquest now continues, but I mean, all these experts, these constables, and um, all these witnesses are proving incredibly costly. Mm. Experts have to be paid, witnesses have to be reimbursed their expenses. Okay. The Bodles were a wealthy family, and the coroner had assumed that they would do anything to bring the person who killed George to justice. He had killed uh, the patriarch of the, the house, poisoned four others there. Of course, they would want to know what's going on. However, he was entirely wrong. Anne Bodle, the wife, wanted nothing to do with it. She said she was unable to pay the expenses. Bitch. Likewise, Bodle's son-in-law, a chap called Samuel Baxter, who did very well in the will, um, refused to have anything to do with the investigation. I mean, people found this incredibly odd. Um, but, yeah. And began wondering, well, is... Is it just young John who's got something against his grandfather? I mean, no one else seems interested in who did the old man in. I mean, in the end, the parish agreed that they would upfront the costs of the investigation. Therefore, we'll sue them to get the money back. Oh, I was about <laughs> I was about to say, always put your faith in the parish. Your parish council will look after you. It's like, no, we're going to fuck you over if we can get this done. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to fucking sue you and get this money back. So with this sort of like blank check from the, the parish, the coroner says, one medical gentleman, not enough. <laughs> I want three. Three medical gentlemen. I would also like three medical gentlemen, please. To carry out this post-mortem. And three medical gentlemen were summoned. <laughs> um, we <laughs> we have Sorry. a Dr. Solly. Solly. Mm, nice. Dr. Solly, a lecturer in anatomy and physiology at St. Thomas's Medical School. Dr. Butler. He was assisted by Dr. Butler. Also a Dr. Bosey. Bosey. Um, a physician from Woolwich. I mean, after a detailed post-mortem, Dr. Sully declared that the death was caused by a general disturbance of the constitution produced by the introduction of some irritating matter into the stomach. So poisoning. The stomach contents were collected and sent to James Marsh yes, James for Marsh. examination. The inquest continues. Witnesses were questioned and cross-examined. It turned into more into a trial than an inquest. Um, and all the while, the media were getting more and more worked up. The theories behind young James's obvious guilt um, were splashed across tabloids. He was being portrayed as an absolute monster. He was lazy. He was a vain he was a scoundrel he hadn't done a hard day's work in his life clearly not he'd been fired his grandfather had fired him from the farm he was living off handouts from his mother he had bought arsenic from a chemist he had fled to london after the poisoning even his father middle john had been quoted in the papers that it was his own opinion 
that it was the intention of the prisoner to make him the next victim. Own father had thrown him under this the bus. This is a horrible family. At the end of the inquest, young George was charged with the murder of his grandfather. The trial starts in December, and it was a complete spectacle. The courtroom was packed with spectators and reporters. Over 50 witnesses and experts were called. But thankfully, I mean, due to the thoroughness of the inquest, everyone had had a dress rehearsal on what to expect. People had rehearsed their testimony mm. so thoroughly during the, the inquest um, that the trial itself went pretty quick. Right. <laughs> they just got up and said in front of the magistrate, the thing I said then, yes, that. Over the next few days, though, young John and his lawyer were able to refute every accusation and piece of evidence put against him. The prosecution couldn't prove that arsenic was the poison. Really? At the time, the test for arsenic was to pass hydrogen sulphide through the sample of what you wanted to test. And if arsenic were present, the sample would turn a cloudy yellow as the arsenic reacted and produced arsenic trisulfide. But the yellow colour didn't last. And by the time it got in front of a jury, it had faded. And James Marsh was there going, well, when I did this test, this was yellow. And it was now a murky green, green <laughs> colour. Um, but if this was yellow, it would be arsenic. The jury were like, well, it's not yellow. See this thing here? If it wasn't this colour, it would definitely be the thing that we said it was the thing of. It was this colour. When I did it a week ago, it was this colour. But now it's not this colour, but it's definitely arsenic. So the jury were unconvinced by this. But then he had bought the arsenic. Well, he had always bought arsenic to kill the rats around the farm. He had fled to London. He went to London. Well, the trip had been planned. He had got a letter from his sister inviting him on that day to come and stay. A woman called Mary Higgins, or a girl called Mary Higgins, who was said to be the one who overheard young John saying that his father was next, um, swore under oath that she had said no such thing. <laughs> Gentlemen, she says. I solemnly declare that no expression of the kind ever passed my lips. No such thought ever entered into my imagination. I mean, there was witness after witness lining up to say what an upstanding young gentleman John was and how shocked they all were about this situation. No one can believe that he did it. Father Clements claimed he was the very best of creatures who ever came into Plumstead. I believe that if he saw a worm lie in his way, he would turn out of the road sooner than Aww. hurt it. That's a bit much. Then the defence unleashed their sort of coup de grace at the end. Who was it who had run to the magistrate with a rumour that John had killed his grandfather? Who was it who had been treated like a common labourer at the farm? Who was it who had spoken to every reporter and anyone who had listened about how he was sure he would be next? (gasps) Who had thrown his own son to the wolves as soon as possible? What kind of father proclaims to the world his own son is trying to kill him? Based on a pub. Middle John! Middle John. Middle John. He was the one, like a common labourer. He was the one going cap in fair hand to his father for money. Um, He was the one who would inherit when his father died. What kind of man would be the first one to accuse his son of murder? A monster, a brute. That's who. Middle John. This is proper Agatha Christie territory. This is. It it truly is. In the drawing room, glass of brandy in hand. There he is, the Dunamois. There it is. Who was it? You all looked at little John. Not little John. Young John. Little John, he's in Robin Hood. Never mind. (laughs) As the judge, Mr. Justice Gasly, began to sum up the case for the jury um, and instruct the jury on what their duty was now, um, he was interrupted by the foreman, who stood up and said he could save his lordship the trouble. They had already come to a verdict. Not guilty. A great cheer went up in the courtroom. Mm. The judge was heard to remark, this verdict, I think, 
cannot be found fault with. Young John left the courthouse and went straight to see his mother and grandmother, who embraced mm. him warmly. So his gravity, the entire jury turned up at the pub oh, to shake the, the young man's hand and wish him well. <laughs> Absolutely. And the PC was there going, hello, I've got them in. <laughs> <laughs> he returned to Plumstead. People were cheered when he returned. When the omnibus arrived, there was a crowd waiting to welcome him. He was so beloved, it would seem. I mean... No one doubted that George Bodle had been deliberately poisoned, but who was it? The trial had shown that others, especially Middlejohn, had motive. The behaviour of the family was incredibly weird, mm. but the trial had been horrendously expensive, but the parish couldn't get their money back. Young John had been pronounced not guilty. The parish couldn't sue. The case was quietly left to be forgotten. Young John moves away. He moves to London. He sets up shop in um, Bishopsgate. He is given handouts by well-wishers and fans thinking, this young man has been done so badly by his own family. Have some cash. Go and set yourself up in business. Middle John continues living in a little cottage. His wife leaves and he dies there 10 years later, 1843. Still at this point, no one knowing who the murderer is. So, three months later, in February 1844, a man named James Smith finds himself on trial at the Old Bailey, accused of seven counts of extortion. His final target, a gentleman, well, actually a butler of this... No, time, not Dr. Butler! Not Dr. Butler, actually a real butler, Thomas Robinson, hadn't capitulated to Smith's bribery as easily as his other victims and had gone to the police. Good for him. Robinson was just a casual acquaintance of Smith's. Um, they were chatty. In the, they bumped into each other in the street. They would chat, um, but they weren't close at all. But one night, Smith turns up at Robinson's hotel room um, and they spend time. Um, and after a few hours, he leaves. The next day, Robinson receives a letter from Smith claiming that he had dropped his wallet containing £15 in the room and that he needed the money back urgently. Mm. And unless Robinson returns the money, then Smith will be forced to contact Robinson's employer, Lord Abingdon, about, and this is a quote, that dreadful insult offered by you on that night, in wishing me to let you commit such a crime on my person as you did. And unless you forward to me the sum lost by me by Tuesday night, my solicitor will write to his lordship on Wednesday morning concerning your base conduct. I feel so disgusted with you that I sincerely hope you will not attempt calling on me. Return me what I have lost and keep out of my way and no one shall ever hear oh, of no. it. No, so he's... So basically, Smythe is accusing Robinson of being, of being gay, being homosexual. He's on trial now. This is the seventh time he has tried to perform the same scam. Oh, what a bastard. Yeah, but just the sheer mention... If that got out in the press or to his employer, no matter if it was true or not. I mean, at this point, Homer, if you were mm. caught in the act, as it were, mm. the death sentence was still available um, at this point. And it was until 1861. Um, I mean, the very merest suggestion of this, true or not, would have cost Robinson his job, complete social ostracisation. Um, but Robinson, thankfully, wasn't having any of it and went straight Good to the police. Good for you, Robinson. Which is fantastic. Fight the homophobes. Exactly. The police, thankfully, believe him. Um, he is a respectable man. He's got a good job. He's, in, he's employed by Lord Abingdon, um, a peer of the realm. So he's going to be of good character. Oh, that, that that's also, like, beautiful but sad at the same time, isn't it? Like, you can't be a gay. <laughs> You're employed by a knight of the realm. You're a good You're man. You're a good man. No. But at least the, on this, this situation, the police 
believe him. And they actually set up a sting operation against Smythe. <laughs> and <laughs> are they in an omnibus? They're, they're not in an omnibus. They're in Smythe's <laughs> lodgings, um, and they set up this whole in quite convoluted sort of trap. They managed to arrest uh, James Smythe. Uh, once he's been arrested, it comes out he's done this to numerous other men who have paid. <laughs> he's represented in in court by a guy called Thomas Clarkson. Interestingly, the same chap who represented young John 11 years earlier. Okay. James Smith was found guilty. He was sentenced to 20 years transportation to Australia. Oh dear. <laughs> so while while he's waiting for transportation, he was held at Newgate Prison. And here the governor of the prison discovers something interesting. James Smith is a pseudonym. James Smith is in fact John Bowman. Shut up! The man who 11 years earlier had been acquitted of killing his grandfather. What? What? Yeah. What? His his businesses have failed. He is every bit the useless, lazy layabout that he was originally portrayed to be. It's young John. Young John has taken to extortion, is extorting this, this money from these people, but he's been caught. It gets better. After he's confronted with this news that I know who you he's are. To- toast of the town, like a person who was supported and, and looked after toast by, the town. His, uh, by all of his fans and was completely vindicated. Th- this is young John? Young John admits, young John admits to killing his Fuck grandfather. Off. To the governor of Newgate Prison. He can't be tried. He's already been committed, uh, acquitted of this crime. No. He can't be tried for the same crime Double jeopardy. Twice. Double jeopardy in the US. So he freely admits... Yes, I killed my grandfather 11 years ago. What are you going to do about it? Nothing you, can, nothing you can do. The only thing they can do is transport him. He gets put on a boat. He goes to Australia. While he's there, well, nothing is heard from him until 1852. So this is, what, eight years after, after transportation. One, like, so like, nearly 20 years after the... 19 years after the murder of the grandfather. The next bit of information we get is that there's a newspaper report mm. offering £2 for the capture of the escaped prisoner, James Smythe. No. He was never heard from again. <laughs> he was free. He was in Australia. He had got away with murder. <laughs> Any Australians listening, I think there's about three. <laughs> I've looked at the stats and there are some of you out there. We are so sorry. Hopefully he did not father many. <laughs> I mean, which was incredible. When I got to that end bit, that he just admits it and goes, yeah, I fucking did it. What are you going to do? I mean, I mean, what the... Wow! What a story, Nick. What, what a, story. a story. And the skill... And the the sheer balls of this young man. And he, when he does all this, he's in his early 20s and he gets away with it. I'd um, heard about Marsh and I'd heard about uh, Bodil because of Marsh's techniques, which do relate. And I'm sure exactly you probably now. went down some of the same poisoner holes that I've gone down as well with Marsh of the technique of actually discovering how the poison is uh, yes. tested and how you can find it in the body. That I mean, that was my original plan to do a bit about the Bodle case um, and then talk about Marsh and then go on to another case oh, which yes. makes him, which is the most famous case where his the, the Marsh test was the first Marsh used. Test. But then the more I got into the story of Bodle, I thought, no, this needs to be an episode. To be fair, you know what? I was with young John all the way through. Because yeah, there was no evidence. Absolutely, yeah. No evidence. There's yeah. no evidence. It's all circumstantial. Yes, middle John, middle John, young John, big John, middle John. There we are. What a bastard the grandfather was as well. Horrible man. Does not deserve to die. Obviously not any, you know, no one in that family deserved to be poisoned. Is there any reason why he would have admitted to it when he was arrested later well, on? 
I just think because well, they can't, they just couldn't do it. He may as well. If he, I he guess. could shout it over the streets. He can't be tried. They can't touch even him. Even if he did it, or even if he didn't, what he has done since then by doing that extortion, by luring men to his abode, whether anything happened or not, but doing that horrible, horrible blackmail. I mean, a horrible, horrible blackmail, yeah. and just so easy, ruined people's lives countless times over and over again. But he's the kind of guy who's doing that just for money. It makes me think a little bit. Did he really do it? Well, who knows? Did he really do it, or was he just prostering just to kind of just get a bit of money and fame? I mean, but mean potentially, I mean he did not benefit any, but in any way of doing this. I mean, he was already. He'd been convicted mm. of extortion. He was in prison. He wasn't able to sell his story or he had no material benefit. I mean, from what the books I read, yes, he did it. They, everyone thinks that he admitted it. Yes, he, he did it. And considering no one else was his in the His father would have benefited from the estate. He then could have killed his father. He would have inherited anyway. But he's probably thinking about the grandfather going, oh my God, just get on with it and die. Then daddy gets the money, and then I can do away with daddy at some point. What if it? What if it wasn't him? What if it wasn't him? Who else would have done it? Was it Middle John? And was it just a one-off and like not in a kind of a Machiavellian? Ha ha ha! He just did the one thing. No, he's just probably over the year. His father had just been so uncaring yeah. and so belittling of Middle John. Yeah, he just had enough um, of that and then be done with it. Was was it's, that the case? It's a proper Agatha Christie one. This one, it's a but real. It is, a, is an absolute mystery, and it twists and turns all over the place, and it's. And it's brilliant. And it's good because next time I will talk about the Marsh Test. So I've got a few episodes lined up um, going way back into history and also some that are a little bit modern. I am quite keen to do a little uh, mini episode as well. Little tiny mini episodes about poisons themselves. There will be very tiny chats about some of the folklore and some of the science behind the poisons that we explore. So things like arsenic, the time, the, the sort of things that we don't always get to discuss in the episodes and some of the craziest stories that probably don't warrant a whole episode but are so worth telling but yeah what did you think of this week's episode how do you feel about espresso martinis are you sick of martinis in general <laughs> please let us know what what do you want to hear from us about would you like to hear more about cocktails would you like to hear more about poisonings? Are there cases that you want us to cover? Do get in touch, Instagram and Facebook. At The Poisoner's Cabinet. At The Poisoner's Cabinet, Twitter. So do get in touch. As we're in lockdown, uh, we will be on Instagram predominantly these days. And we do stories and we do little posts as well. So it's a really good place for you to come along and just have a bit of a chat. But send Nick cocktail ideas. Yes, do. Share your pictures of the cocktails that you're enjoying. And otherwise, make sure that you subscribe to our channel. Download, share. And leave lovely, lovely reviews on iTunes. We have been the people inside the Poisoner's Cabinet. And remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. Bye, everyone.